As I mentioned before, we are in the book of Genesis, and the subtitle of our series is Foundations for an Unsteady World. Man, is this world unsteady? <laughs> Man, it is going crazy. The wheels are falling off the wagon, it seems like, faster than we can even spin our heads, for sure. Um, for those of you who don't know, Greg is a professor at the University of Houston downtown. And uh, a lot of people don't know, the University of Houston downtown has a separate mascot. They're not the Cougars. They're what? They're Gators. They're the Gators. And uh, University of Houston Clear Lake also has a separate mascot. Anybody know what theirs is? The Hawks, right. Yeah, so interesting, distinct mascots there. But we, we appreciate Greg uh, reading the scripture for us this morning. But before he does, I, I asked him to share something with us this morning that he had been telling me about. So go ahead and tell us about that, Greg. Yeah, we, we've been doing a, a small group or life group at our place and the Medinas and um, Nathan Torres. I won't try to say the last name, but um, we, we've really enjoyed the, the format. It's, we're doing a Discovery Bible Groups format, and this is just reading through the Scripture. It's letting the Holy Spirit really guide the discussions. Um, and uh, one of the, the great things about it is we read through a, a passage of scripture, scripture several times. We ask basic questions of what does it tell us about God, what does it tell us about people, and what is something we like about it. But the thing that I really have enjoyed the most is the last thing uh, when we're kind of breaking up into groups, we'll uh, answer the question of if we believe that this scripture is true and from God, how does it, how is it going to change our lives this week? And then the last piece is, who do you want to share this with? So this is something that is in my Christian walk has been something that's very uh, challenging for me to be outspoken, to to speak about my Christian life, and to share with people and have spiritual conversations. It's very easy to let things stay superficial. So this has been a challenging um, exercise for me, but I've really enjoyed kind of the team, the the doing life together and thinking about these things, um, and even kind of talking about uh, what are some some strategies. And and so we we talk about the idea that um, that. God is guiding us through these things and um, that the Holy Spirit is, is guiding us to be able to speak, oftentimes um, where we feel like we're incapable of doing it. And I think that's true, but we've also found that it's good to have some ideas and, and some intentionality to it. So thinking about what you might say to start a conversation um, to turn things in a spiritual direction. And this comes from my wife, who I think she's with the kids this morning, but but she's uh, liked to start asking people um, uh, are you looking for a church? And whether they were or not, it oftentimes had them talking about something spiritual, and then there might be an opportunity to share the scripture from that week. But just having that um, in my mind has allowed me to sit in conversations longer, not be so task-oriented, to think about how this person is doing and, and, and how their um, uh, day is even going, and, and listen to them and have more opportunities to invite people to church, and one of the things, or and to talk about spiritual things, but one of the things that really um, stuck with me is that there was a time when I invited somebody to church in a really kind of inadequate way. It was sort of awkward. I didn't, I didn't say anything particularly, particularly compelling or persuasive, um, and that was something that was completely God orchestrated. The the whole meeting together, um, and that person showed up, and I and I was I was so moved by. The, the fact that as we're praying and, and seeking these opportunities to be able to share and having our eyes open for that, just the smallest little bit of effort God is, is going to use and, and move in that. Um, yeah. And so 
just to see how he can use my smallest efforts um, was really uh, something that was was awesome to see. And it's it's helped me to continue to look for those opportunities. But I think it's so important to pray, to, to be asking him to open the opportunities, but for him to empower you to do it um, and to just bring some intentionality to it and thinking about how you might start those conversations. But there's certainly things that we've talked about um, in the group uh, about what our motives are. And I think that one of the last uh, scriptures that we read out of uh, Matthew was talking about uh, to, to not be anxious about anything. And that passage of scripture ends with seeking first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. And so we, I keep coming back to that, to the idea of seek first the kingdom and let him empower you. Even though we're trying to be intentional, it's not like we kind of take the, the commands of scripture and we do it in our own power. Uh, so it's it's an interesting dynamic of trusting God and and letting Him give you the strength at the same time stepping out in faith and and taking action. So, sorry that might have been longer than we no, that's perfect. <laughs> I appreciate that. We all need to be encouraged to invite people and start gospel conversations. All right, and I appreciate you reading God's Word for us this morning. Yeah. yeah so it'll be on the screen right there. Can you see it? Okay. Uh huh. All yeah. right. Great. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. And said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that you know that I was I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, The spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the Goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners, for he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money? All the wealth that God has taken away from our Father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives and camels. He drove away all his livestock and all his property that he had gained. The livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had 
and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. We believe it is true, and we believe it is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. We also know that Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit of God will guide us into all truth and be our teacher. So, Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would do just that, that he would teach us this morning, that he would convict each of us individually of what we need to do differently, how we need to be more like Christ. Open our eyes and our hearts this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So Nicole Marie Stevens, she was 52 years old, living in Portland, Oregon. Her mom was developing dementia rapidly since the diagnosis. She was the primary caregiver, and so her mom also signed over to her the power of attorney to run all of her finances. Thankfully, because of her father passing away with a good life insurance and retirement and all those things like that, there was plenty of money in the bank to take care of her mom. When her mom, and then she checked her mom into an assisted living place and told them that she has enough money to pay for it long term. So she paid for the first couple of months. And then when the facility started to draft the money for the next month, it bounced. And so there was an investigation. In, 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 what's the word? That, what's the word? Anyway, there's an investigation that happened <laughs> and uh, turned out that uh, Nicole spent $375,000 of her mom's money in two months. In fact, the very day that they tried to draft that payment, she bought a $24,000 brand new car. And so she's doing some time in prison for stealing from her mom who had dementia. And in this chapter right here, Genesis 31, it's a story about stealing from parents and stealing from family. And it's really a crazy story. I know you read a lot about cattle and sheep and goats, and you think, okay, but this is really could be an action film. This could be a crazy movie. Maybe someone will sell the rights to it. I don't know. Um, but I want to divide it up into six parts, and we'll move through this like an airplane ride. We're going to just kind of fly over this chapter because Greg just read 24 verses. There's 55 verses. We're going to cover them all. It'll be quick, so buckle up your, your seatbelt, and we're going to fly over this. The first part is the family meeting. The second part is the wives' response. And the third part is the great escape. And then Laban's ticked off, and Jacob goes off on Laban, and then finally Laban offers a ceasefire. So we're going to see a lot of family drama here. I know none of you know anything about family drama, but kind of put yourself in their shoes here this morning. So first, there's this family meeting. Jacob heard the gossip. He heard the rumors. How much of this was true, we don't know, because you know how hearsay goes. Uh, and it, he heard that Laban's son, who Laban was his employer, and his father-in-law. Has Laban been a good employer up to this point? No. He'd been quite the trick, trickster, cheated him a lot. But he heard that his sons were saying, hey, you know, that Jacob, he's taken all that our father had. And really, had he taken all? Well, we know from the previous chapters, he didn't take all. He was getting the better end of the stick because God was blessing him, as we can see, as we'll see in the chapter ahead. But he didn't take everything. People tend to exaggerate. We don't know if the, the sons actually said all, or by the time the story got to him, it was exaggerated, embellished. And then it says, and he has gained all his wealth from, well, Laban put Jacob in a situation where he could gain some wealth. So they're making it sound like he's really 
stealing from him when he's not totally. And so Laban did not regard him as before. Do you know anybody who kind of uses you as long as you're useful? (laughs) And then as soon as you're no longer useful, they act like they don't know you? Well, as long as Jacob was making Laban money, Laban's like, hey, Jacob, how you doing? Man, you're such a good guy. He's just all smiling to his face. But as soon as things start turning south and he's not doing as well financially, Laban's like, I don't have time for you. And he's not treating him the same. He's one of those people that's all about him, as we'll see here in a little bit. So the Lord had already told Jacob, you need to go back to your land of your fathers, the land we call the promised land. Do you remember his grandfather, Abraham, did not want to leave the land at all. In fact, when it came time to find a wife, he didn't even let him or his son go because he didn't want to get taken away, delayed. He wanted to stay where? In the promised land. But Jacob has a different plan. He doesn't do what his father and grandfather, he drifts out there. He goes to find a wife. He's supposed to just go find a wife and come right back. How many years has it been? 20 years. You know, believer, if we're not careful, we can get distracted from God's will and waste years of our life out in the wilderness when we belong in the promised land, where we belong where God wants us to be. And God says, hey, it's time to go back. You need to go home, and I promise I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called for Rachel and Leah. These are sisters. Do they like each other? No. (laughs) That's been part of the problem. He wanted to marry beautiful Rachel, but he was tricked by Laban, and he got Leah. So then he also serves another seven years to get Rachel. So for 14 years, he gets two wives and lots of misery. And he he calls them to come out into the field. Why that? Because he didn't want anybody within 100 yards to hear this conversation. You know, he'd heard all the gossip, and he knows how word travels, and he didn't want this conversation. So can you imagine the walk from the tents out to the field to where Jacob is between these two sisters who don't like each other. And it's just them. Nobody else has come along and they're walking out to the field. I'm sure it may have been awkward. It probably was quiet. Maybe. Who knows what was said. Could have been a lot of jabs. We don't really know what was going on. I'd like to have been a, a, a flea on the camel to be along that side. Uh, it says, and he said to him, hey, look, hey, I see what's happening here. Your father does not regard me as favorite before. I can tell that my days are numbered around here. But God... Now, I want you to count how many times God does something in the next few verses, okay? So count on your fingers here. But, but the God of my father has been with me. That's the first one. And then he says, and you know that I have served my father with all my strength. Now, that's a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because whatever, you know, the Bible says, whatever your hands find to do, how should you do it? Do it with all your might, okay? So when you go to work, Pilar at McDonald's, or when you guys go to the office, you ladies work wherever you work, in the home, out of the home. How should we do it? With all our might, right? All our strength. That's what the, But it also can be a bad thing because the Bible says to serve God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I kind of get the feeling that Jacob's been serving Laban and not Jesus. And so it's good that he's doing it with all his might, but he's putting it all in the wrong direction. And that's why we have 20 years later, things are still not good at all in the family. He said, yet, even though you guys saw how hard I worked for you, for all these sheep, for all these goats, for everything we have, and by this time he's rich, okay? He owns lots of camels, and camels were like owning Rolls Royces. So he had multiple Rolls Royces. He's very wealthy. He says, you guys see what I've done, but yet your dad continues to cheat me, and he changed my wages 10 times. 
Now, the 10, I don't know if that's an exaggeration or not, because we see in the passage, it's really a handful of times, but maybe there's another handful that's not even mentioned. Maybe he's changed it a whole lot more. But he's done that. And of course, 10 in the Bible means like completeness. So this guy is totally cheating me, but God did not permit him to harm me. Now, what's really interesting about that is God allowed Laban to do a lot of things, but not to harm him. It kind of sounds similar to the story of Job. Remember, Satan goes before God and says, you know, well, Job, he only serves you because you've blessed him with all this wealth. You know, you, you, you mess with his life and stuff, he'll curse you. And he goes, well, you go ahead and do what you want to do to him, but you cannot kill him. So God permitted Satan to do things, but God was still in control. God is still sovereign. Satan is just a puppet. Satan thinks he's doing what he wants to do, but God's using all things together for good, the good and the bad and the ugly. And so God was protecting Jacob the whole time, and he's teaching him a lesson. Even in his wilderness experiences, he's learning a lesson. Moses, first 40 years of his life, in the palace. Next 40 years of his life, in the wilderness. But what was he preparing him for? To come back for the last 40 years of life to lead the nation of Israel. God can use our dumb mistakes, our wilderness experiences, to make us stronger. He's not telling you to be stupid and go waste years, but when you do, he says, we're not going to waste them. We'll let you learn from them. And God was in control. And he says, you know, here's what he kept doing. The original agreement was, I will take everything that is disliked. Amongst cattle, sheep and goats especially, if anything was spotted, striped, or mottled, which in some, if you breed dogs, it's called merle. Anyway, any one of those three, people didn't really like those. They tried to breed away from them. And Jacob said, hey, I'll do you a favor. I'll clean up your flocks. I'll take all the spotted the stripe, and the, mo- and the mottled. And that was the agreement, all three. But then Laban kept saying, well, no, no, no. I'm not going to let you all three. I'll let you have striped. But guess what happened? The stripes started multiplying like crazy. And who was doing that? God. And, and so Laban sees, man, there's striped goats and sheep uh, out here everywhere. Um, did I say striped? I meant mottled. And so then, he, then all of a sudden the mottled start breeding like crazy and, every, and everywhere. So every time Laban keeps changing it. God keeps saying, okay, well, I'll show you who's in control. So God was in total control of the, even the breeding of the animals in the littlest detail. And he says, thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. God's just, he's the one in control. He knows which ones are multi- being fruitful and multiplying, and he's the one in control. So how many times, I hope I didn't distract you, did you see God? Yeah, good for you, three times, which is the number of God. We could even see that this is the Trinity involved again. God the Father, God the Son, Holy Spirit. We see that God's presence, he says, I will be with you. Then we saw God's protection. God didn't let him harm you. And then we see God's provision. God has given all these sheep and goats into my hand. So God's taking care of them. You see them in the passage. This is why we need to read our Bibles carefully. Count things. See, And whenever you come across lists or things that are repeated, circle them, underline them, count them, see what God's trying to say, because you've got a Bible, you know, it's about this thick, but the volume of information is crazy. I mean, you can, every one of you who've been a Christian for more than a few years, you can read your Bible over and over again, and you will come across verses like, I've read this a hundred times, and I didn't get that out of it. It's because the Word of God is infinite, it's eternal. It's not just like a book of information, it's a book of inspiration. It is the the sword of the Holy Spirit, and, and it's infinite in its, in its comprehension. So uh, he says, in the breeding season, the flock, I lifted up my eyes, and I saw in a dream, okay, this is how God made it clear to him what's happening on the DNA level, what's happening on the genetic level, 
about this, what was happening with the breeding. He says, and the angel of the Lord. Now, when it says the angel of the Lord, who is that? That's Jesus. This is what's called a Christophany. This is a pre-incarnate appearance before Bethlehem of Jesus in the Old Testament. And so Jesus did this at different times. He's called the angel or the messenger of the Lord. And what's interesting is reading your Bible about how many times someone says the angel of the Lord told me, and then at the end of what their pastor will say, and God told me, equating the angel of the Lord with God, showing that Jesus is God and part of the Trinity again. And so he told them this in the dream, what was happening? He said, lift up your eyes and see, and this is in the dream, that all the goats that mate are striped, spotted, and mottled. See, if you looked with human eyes, you saw white sheep and black goats. And then every now and then you saw a striped or a spotted, but the majority were normal. But in the dream, he saw that all the males were striped, spotted, or mottled. God said, you know, on a genetic level, I'm using those latent genes, okay? In my family, my mom had brown eyes. My dad had brown eyes. There were six of us kids. Five of us had brown eyes. My brother Jerry was a weirdo with green eyes, okay? Because my dad had a latent green-eyed gene, and my mom had a latent green-eyed gene, and mathematically, it's very difficult for them to match up, but it did. So one out of six was, was weird, and so he was weird in a lot of other ways. But anyway, uh, God can make those mathematics work. He's the one engineering the gene pool and making things happen. Um, and he says, you know, I've seen that all the labeling is doing to you, but yet God allows this. Why? Because he's making Jacob stronger. Don't run from the difficult times in your life. Don't change jobs every time the boss is being a jerk. Don't quit on your marriage when she won't do what you tell her to do or he won't treat you like you want him to. Don't quit on things just like that. God could be using this to, to strengthen you. He says, I am the God of Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. That's a great word, right? Bethel, we like that. And so where you've anointed a pillar and you made a vow to me. Do you remember the vow? that Jacob made a few chapters back at Bethel? What was it? To give a tenth of everything. Okay, And here's Jacob tithing before the law of Moses. So when people say, oh, tithing, that's Old Testament, that's under the law. Um, Jacob did it before the law. Abraham did it before the law. So it's a universal principle. Jesus endorsed it after the law. So it's a, it's a good principle. But anyway, he said, he made a vow to me, and that, that was to give him a tenth of everything. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Get out of this wilderness place where Laban's treating you badly, and you're serving him. Return to the promised land, which is a better land where you can serve me. This is, these verbs here are something we need to remember. Go out to, go out and return to. Go out, return to. There are times in our life when we need to get out of something. Maybe it's a bad relationship. I'm not talking about your marriage. I'm talking about a bad relationship. Maybe you're dating someone you should not be dating. It's time to go out of that and return to the Lord. Maybe you're working at a job you know you shouldn't be working at. It's, it's causing you to compromise your principles, be unethical. God's saying, hey, get out of that and return to. Isn't that what Revelation chapter 2 is about? The church of Laodicea? They had become lukewarm. And what did he say? Return to your first works. Remember what you did when you first got saved? You need to get out of this lukewarmness and get on fire for me. At least be hot or cold to be something, but stop being lukewarm. And that's what he's calling Jacob to do. The second point is the wives' response. So he brings out, he has this family meeting, awkward walk out to the field. He tells them about all this and said, hey, it's time to go. We're going to go back to the promised land. God told me in a dream, it's time to go. 
Then Rachel and Leah answered him. You see that together? That said, is there any portion of inheritance left in our father's house? I think for the first time in their life, the sisters are agreeing on something and they're being brought to this point, which is a great thing. And let me just say, a lot of you are involved in blended families. And the best thing, you know, there's hers, mine, ours, that kind of thing. And you got steps involved and all that stuff. The best thing you can do for your kids is be adults. Be adults. Don't use the kids as pawns and treat them badly from and talk bad about your ex. Don't do it. Be an adult and do that. And, and these two ladies, as childish as they've been up to this point, they're putting on their big girl pants and they're acting mature. And they're saying, you know what? Let's be together on this. We've fought, but we can actually agree on this. And we can agree that our dad has been ripping us off. In fact, instead of putting Jacob in the inheritance as family, part of the clan, he said, oh, how much will be your wage? And that's when the whole goats and sheep thing. So, Because he didn't want him inheriting anything. And by cutting out Jacob, he also cut out his daughters. Well, they weren't inheriting anything. Of course, God showed them better by giving them all. But all that they had, now the, the camels, the sheep, the donkeys, not to mention servants. They've got, a, they've got an industrial complex going on. Now, well, they got who knows how many dozens of employees probably. And they're by today's standard, they'd be millionaires. And they're like, we got all this because our husband worked hard and not because anything to do with our dad. In fact, our dad tried to cheat us every time he could, 10 times maybe. And then they're speaking together. Are we not regarded as foreigners? He's treating us like we're not even his daughters, like we're some people who just came from another land from across the country. And then he has sold us. He basically said, hey, you can work for my daughters. And then he works 14 years. Like, what are we, property? Yeah, that's how he's treating them. And then he has indeed devoured our money. Anything that we would have inherited, it's gone. And so why should we show any loyalty to our dad? It's interesting. Make a mental note. Later, Laban has no clue that that's what his daughters think of him. He says, all the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, you do it. And so the wives are on the same page and just... In case you haven't been here in weeks before, the Bible is not endorsing polygamy here. Okay, This is a big mistake that Jacob has made, and you can see he's paid for it. And anytime you read about multiple wives in the Bible, it's showing you how stupid it is. But at least the wives are now agreeing here. And so they're like, hey, if God told you in a dream to do this, you, let's do it. And so they planned the great escape. So Jacob arose and said his sons. How many sons does he have right now? Eleven. Okay. And his wives, how many wives does he have? Four, good for you. Jacob, uh, Rachel and Leah each have handmaids that they've given to him as wives. It says in the batch, as wives. So it's so funny, they're like, oh, we don't want to commit adultery, so we'll give them to you as a wife, but we'll commit polygamy. I mean, just the double standards in the name of religion is, is crazy. And then he sets them all on camels. So if I do the math correctly, we're taught, and Dinah's not mentioned in this, but I think she's probably either riding with someone or has her own camel. So at least 16 camels, 16 Mercedes-Benz are hitting the road, okay? And camels, you know, in the Middle East, even to this day, are a big deal. And they're super fast. They race camels. And I meant to look it up. Someone Google it. How fast does a camel run? I, I didn't find up. So go ahead. I know you all have to on your phones anyway. So look it up and find out how, how, uh, how fast a camel is. So he drove away all his livestock. Again, he's got tons of sheep, tons of goats, donkeys, and camels are leading the way out there. And all of his property, so he's loading down the camels, the donkeys, with all of his property that he had. And by the way, he's doing this all stealthily, stealthily. 
one of those words there. And so the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padam Aram, we knew that from a few chapters ago, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. This is the big homecoming, and we're talking about transporting hundreds and hundreds and not a thousand livestock, people, all kinds of things all at once. And so Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household goods, gods. Okay, so remember last week Laban stole all the spotted striped and mottled before Jacob would get to him years ago, and he put them how far away? Three days away. Well, this is going to backfire on Laban because now how, how much of a head start does Jacob have? A three-day head start. So he's not going to find out very quickly. So it's time to shear sheep, and when you did that, you went out into the hill country, and you basically camped out there, and you did that far away, and so he's like on a weekend vacation, and so she takes this opportunity to go into her father's house, who is not a believer, and steal his household gods. Now, these household gods, don't think of anything big, okay? These were like G.I. Joe and Barbie dolls, okay? You know what? You played with those, okay? They were small, and you put them in different places in your home, and, and, and we don't know how many he had, okay? People in those days believed in multiple gods. There was the god of the sun, the god of the valley, the god of the rain, and you worship all these different, and whatever wasn't going right in your life, you worship that God and made sacrifice that God. You know, if your sheep weren't multiplying well, you know, the God of the hillside where the, where the animals were, whatever it may be. So you had these little G.I. Joes and Barbies all over the house that you worshiped and you thought that they brought good luck. You say, oh, how stupid people were back then. Have you bought donuts lately? Do you not see the cat doing this? That's exactly what that is. That's their God, okay? You see the little Buddhas in the Chinese restaurants. You see people doing it all the time. Okay, and there's some people. It's not a kitty cat or a Buddha. It's a it's a Mercedes or it's a nice house in the right neighborhood. There's people still worshiping God today. But why why did she steal them? Why would she do that? Okay, well, there's a great theologian named David Guzik who gives several reasons why. Number one, perhaps she worshipped idols and she didn't want to be without them. So she takes them and hits the road. So so these gods will bring her good luck and like her dad's not doing it right anyway. Or perhaps she didn't want her father to inquire them. Because remember last week, what was he doing? He was doing the Ouija board or something to find out what was going on. And she doesn't want him to do divination with the gods because they'll figure out that they've left or where they went. So maybe she's doing it for that reason. Perhaps Rachel stole them, the teraphim, as they're called, simply to get back at her father. She, they did, her and her sister just went off about how badly they've been treated these 20 years. And so this is revenge against dad because he's mistreated her and the family. According to some Jewish traditions, some rabbis teach that Rachel took the teraphim because she didn't want her father to continue idolatry, that she was actually saving him from these pagan gods, maybe. Um, and perhaps it was because such idols were often used as deeds to property. You see, today, you know, we have a piece of paper that says, this is a title deed. The other day I sold a car. I sold one of my cars. And uh, I had to have this document, you know. And in those days, they didn't have lawyers drawing up paper. They had these gods. And one god might be the god to the barn. And whoever has that owns the barn. The other god might be the god of the sheep and the cattle. Whoever has that owns that. So maybe Rachel's like, someday I'm coming back when dad dies. And I'm going to say, hey, this is mine. You know, and, it, and that could very well happen. Um, so uh, let's see, get to this one here. So it could be as a title deed to, to, to claim the inheritance later. All right, we don't know which one of these was, but Jacob tricked Laban 
which Jacob's name means the heel gripper, the one who trips people up. This is what he's been doing his whole life, tricking people. And that's not a good thing. The Bible's not endorsing this. And there's some people who just can't seem to have adult conversations when there's problems. They can't say, hey, you know what? Can I talk to you? I notice there's been this issue here, and I just want to tell you I don't think it's right, and what can we do to fix this? That's what adults do. But some people, even in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, instead of having adult conversations, they run. And this is what Jacob's done his whole life. He just tricks people to get what he wants, or he runs. And it's interesting that now Laban, it's previously has been called the father-in-law, or the father of Rachel Leah. All of a sudden, it keeps calling him the Aramean. The Aramean. It's like Moses, when he's writing this, is trying to make a distinction, like he's not one of our people, and he's trying to repeat that. It's kind of like in the book of Ruth, which is a really short book, but what does it keep saying about Ruth? Ruth, the Moabitess. Ruth, the Mo- it keeps reminding you that she's a foreigner who's been accepted into the family of God. And I think here, Moses keeps one reminding you that Laban is a foreigner who's not accepted the family of God. Anyway, he, so he tricked him by not telling him. He said, well, that's his own personal business. Well, that's what most Americans would say. But we don't live in a shame and honor culture that's all about family and not individualism. Laban was the head of the clan, and pretty much you ask permission to do anything from the head of the clan. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. That's just the custom of the day, as Laban reminded Jacob when he first married the wrong daughter of what their customs were. And so it's also, though, you have to think about, he's really an employee. Okay, This is a mutual thing. In fact, when he first wanted to go away six years prior, Laban offered him a deal. And Jacob said, okay, here's what I'll do. And he postponed the trip back to the promised land again. So he's not being held captive there. So the least he could do is give two weeks notice. I'm sure somewhere back then they had something similar to two weeks notice, but it was probably more like two months notice or two years notice. But he just, in the middle of the night, ups and, and goes. Uh, how many of you ever heard of the comedian Michael Jr.? He's, he's really funny. You ought to look him up. He's a Christian comedian. And he talks about giving two weeks notice. He says, yeah, boss, um, in about two weeks you'll notice that I'm not here. <laughs> and so that's what he called two weeks notice. And so Jacob doesn't even have the courtesy to do that. He fled with all that he had, and he arose, and he crossed the Euphrates, and he set his face. means he, with everything he had, he was totally committed to this goal of getting back to the promised land. So our third point is, after Laban is tricked, Laban is ticked. So when it was told to Laban on the third day, and why third days? Because he's the one who moved them three days apart. He had fled. So... Um, he, when he finds all this out, he's not happy. You see the phrase third day all over the Bible. Okay? It, it's very significant. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, when does God create plant life? The third day. In fact, everything is dead up at this point, but God speaks life into the plant on the third day. And of course, three days later, God does what? Breathes life and creates human life into Adam. So it's, we have three days. Three days, and then on the seventh day, God rests. And then in Genesis 22, Abraham offers Isaac after what? Three days. In Exodus 19, God calls all the people of Israel to gather around Mount Sinai. And he speaks to Moses and he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you on the third day. You see a theme here? In Jonah chapter 1, Jonah's in the belly of the whale. How long? Three days. Jesus predicted that he would die on the cross and rise again How on what? The third day. And so you see this theme in the Bible about the third day. And so whenever you read that, 
Make note of the significance. By the way, this will blow your mind. In Hosea, it predicts that our Messiah will, go, will leave us and go away for two days, and then in the third day, he will live in our presence. First Peter says a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. How long is the millennial kingdom when Christ will live in our presence? A thousand years. How long has he been gone? Two thousand. Do you think Jesus is coming back soon? Yeah, okay. I'm not predicting any dates. Don't say what I'm not hearing. Okay, don't hear what I'm not saying. Okay, I'm just saying we know it's soon. The Bible says that, you know, you will see the leaves on the trees turning and you know fall is coming. And you can see the way the world is going right now. And Jesus has been gone approximately 2,000 years. And so I would say his, his coming is soon. Third day is important. So when it was told to Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen and with him, so he gathered his own little private army and he pursued him. The word pursued here means to hunt down. He plans to kill Jacob, okay? He's pursuing him. He's not chasing him, following him. He's pursuing him. He pursued them seven days because he's got a three-day head start. So after one day, they're doing double time, but he's four days out, you know, so they did two days and the gap closed. It takes seven days to close the gap and he followed him close to Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, again, third time it calls on this, in a dream. God intervenes here. It's really interesting. Is Laban a believer? No. And yet, God is speaking to him in a dream. This is not the only time in the Bible. It happens over and over again. Remember King Abimelech took Sarah into his harem? God came in a dream and said, hey, don't you touch her. You will be in big trouble if you do. And Abimelech goes to Abraham and says, hey, wait, what have you done? You know, Laban here. Uh, in, and then when Joseph, chapters down the road, when we get towards the end of Genesis, the butler, not a believer, he's an Egyptian, and God speaks to him in a dream. He speaks to the baker in a dream. Uh, we see that he speaks to Pharaoh in a dream. He speaks to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream, who later would become a believer. Pilate's wife, even, she says, hey, have nothing to do with Jesus. I've been troubled by this man. With And of course, when the Bible says dreams, in all these cases, these are nightmares. These are nightmares. People waking up in cold sweat. Cornelius, the same thing. A not a believer, and God is speaking to him. And so here's what God says to Laban, the Aramean in the dream. He says, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. You're going to see quickly, if you didn't notice already, he doesn't even obey God in his direct dream. He has a lot to say to Jacob, and it's not all good. He says, I don't even want you to deal with the guy, but he's going to do it anyway. Laban overtook. He caught up with Jacob. Now, Jacob had pitched his tent. They pitched their tent. The story moves on. Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and you've driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Like, my daughters would have never left me. You must have put a sword to their throats and made them leave. <laughs> he's, he's like a lot of men. He's, he's totally oblivious here. Laban is totally oblivious or delusional as to how bad his relationship with his daughters really is. What did the daughters say? For the first time in their lives, they're agreeing on something. Yeah, our dad is a jerk. Whatever God told you, we're out with you. We're ready to go. And yet he thinks, man, my daughters would have never left me unless you just put a sword to their throat and like kidnapped them. So he says, why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me? And listen to, listen to how he snowball, snows them here. What, I don't know what the word is, a better word for this. Said, oh man, I was planning on putting on a big party for you. I would have sent you away with celebration and songs. We would, have, we would have hired a mariachi band and had a big party, you know? Oh, come on, Laban, that's not what you would have done. 
The last time you tried to leave, what did you do? You manipulated things again. That's all you've done is manipulate. And you're, you're talking all kinds of junk here like you would have put on a big party because you're the great-grandfather. You're, you're wonderful and great father to your girls. Yeah. And so why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Now he's going to play the sympathy card. Do you see? You know you're around a manipulator when they start trying to make you feel guilty. You know, oh, my tender little grandchildren, I would have liked to have kissed them goodbye, but you didn't do that. And again, the only thing he says is really accurate. He says, now you have done foolishly. And, and Jacob did. Jacob should have been man enough to go to him and say, hey, last time I tried to leave, you talked me into staying. I stayed. I, I honored the agreement. It's time for me to go. I will give you two weeks notice, two months, but I'm going. I don't care what you say. I've talked to my wives, your daughters, and they're all on board with this. We are going and have a face-to-face conversation. But, but he doesn't because he's scared. He's, and Laban goes, you know, it's in my power to do, to do you harm. I, I could kill you right now. Okay? So much for God saying, don't even talk to him. Don't say anything bad. Don't say anything good. Don't even just talk to him. But he's disobeying. Okay? But the God of your father spoke to me last night and says, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. But again, why? He's even sharing the dream, which you'll regret later. He said, now, you have gone away because, here's why you left. You longed greatly for your father's house. Well, that's a good thing. I mean, he's leaving for a good reason. He should have had a good conversation about it. And I, okay, I understand why you want to go home. You want to go back to your dad. You want to have a big family union. That's, that's fine. But why would you steal my gods? That's what I really don't understand. I understand you want to leave, but why would you steal my gods? So Jacob answered him, and he answers the first question first. So don't think this is explaining why he stole the gods. He's answering the first question. He said, well, the reason I left in the middle of the night is because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take my daughters from me by force. Legitimate fear, but who are you more afraid of? Laban or God? Don't you think that God is able to protect you? I mean, wasn't it God for the last 20 years has been causing these sheep and goats to multiply in a weird direction so that you had more striped, mottled, and spotted than he had regular white and black lambs. And if God could do all this, don't you trust him to protect you and to save your life in a situation? Proverbs 29, verse 25. I refer to this verse often. The fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. When you are all consumed with wow, I don't know what they think of me. And I, will they like this dress? Or, you know, I don't know what the guys think about the way I do this or whatever. And you get all concerned about what everybody else thinks. Man, it's a trap. You just don't worry about that. What's the opposite of fearing people? Trusting in the Lord. And when you trust in the Lord, you, all you concern is, I just want to know what God thinks. And if I please God, then I'll please all the right people. And all the people who aren't happy with me, they weren't going to be happy with me anyway. Okay? So, Trusting in the Lord is what Jacob needed at this point in his life. He said, anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. Whoa, bold prediction there, Jacob. Jacob is so confident that no one in his family has stolen these. And it shows that he doesn't know his wives very well. He definitely doesn't know Rachel very well, because she's the one that stole them. He says, whoever, whoever you find with them, kill them. <laughs> well, thankfully he doesn't find them. But he says, and I want you to do this in the presence of our kinsmen. I want all my men to stand here and watch you search. And then you, all your men watch and you, while you're searching. Because you've made this a public thing. You're embarrassing me publicly. Let's see how this turns back on you publicly. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had actually stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent. This is awkward. This is, this is taking hours. Okay? Does Jacob have a lot of stuff? 
It's got a lot of people, a lot of tents. Look at which tent Laban goes to first. Leah. Once again, the daughter that he didn't love, that he had to trick somebody into marrying, that he, why can't you be like Rachel? You know, you're not as pretty as Rachel. I doubt he said that one out loud, but he always treating Leah as a, he goes to her tent first. And notice the wording here. It says, and into the tent, it's the same tent of the two female servants. So Leah doesn't even get her own tent. She shares this tent, and there's probably like a separation divider where the two servants are next to that. And you'll see why the language backs that up. He goes to Leah's tent first. Parents don't play favorites with your kids. This tend to run in the family here with Jacob and Isaac. They tended to play favorites. It really caused havoc with their kids. And if you're the kid who's not the favorite, just realize this. Your heavenly father thinks you are. And if your earthly father's being a knucklehead or was a knucklehead while he was alive and he didn't treat you the best, your heavenly father loves you more than anybody ever could and you're his favorite. And so it's amazing there. And so, um, but he didn't find them. So he went into Leah's tent and he, and he came out of Leah's tent, which is showing it's one tent, and entered Rachel's. He does her set tent second, okay? Because he really didn't think, there's no way my, my favorite Rachel would have done this to me. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and she put them in the camel's saddle. Now, don't think Texas saddle, okay? In the Middle East, the saddle was basically layers of blankets with pockets, okay? And they layer them certain ways so they could put things in them. And so he's feeling about the tent and he didn't find them. And so he comes out and he said to my father, don't let my Lord, which Lord here is not God. It means Lord as in sir. Please don't be angry with me. It's interesting she says that to her dad. Don't be angry. Evidently, he has a history of being angry. And she's like, I know, you know everything seems to make you mad. So please don't be mad at me. But I, I really can't get up because the way of women is upon me. This was her time of the month. And so it would have been really embarrassing for her because she didn't have all the advantages that maybe ladies have today. It could have revealed you know, spots and things like that. So she's like, don't ask me to get up, please. I'm going to stay seated. Um, forgive me for not getting up. But she had put the gods under the blankets that she's sitting on the camels. Now, here's what's ironic about that. Under Mosaic law, anything that comes in contact with blood is what? Desecrated. She's actually desecrating his gods, which is kind of like a smack in the face to him if he knew what had actually happened. So he searched, but he didn't find, he searched elsewhere, but he didn't find the gods. Now they were there. And so now Jacob's going to go off on Laban. Jacob's ticked off. He tricks Laban. Laban gets ticked off. Now Jacob goes off here. And then he became angry and berated Laban. So this is public. He doesn't say, hey, can we come outside? Can I talk to you behind the tent over here? He's like going to scold him in front of everybody. Because why? He accused him in front of everybody. Of course, Jacob thinks he's innocent. But again, Rachel had other plans. And he says, what is my offense? You just tell me in front of everybody what I've done wrong. You tell me what my sin is that you so hotly pursued me. You're going to track me down to kill me. You know, and you're going to do all this in front of everybody. And you fell through all my good. You're sitting here for hours now, going through every sleeping bag, through every bag, through every bag. You're just feeling away through all this, and you're going to do this in front of everybody to embarrass me. What is, so what have you found of your household goods? Come on, show me what you found. Let's show, let's, let's show what this biggest investigation is about. And you just sit here in front of all your kinsmen and all mine. Let everybody see what you found. Oh, what did you find, Laban? What did you find? Oh, nothing. That's what you found? You see him playing the revenge game here, getting back at him in a big way. Um, he says, these 20 years, now he's going to go off on him. 
He said, I've been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, which is unusual. Hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of livestock and no miscarriages. Either Jacob was exaggerating or this is God's way of watching out for him. But either way, he's saying, I've done a good job. And remember, remember when he first came upon Laban's shepherds? They had no clue what to do. They didn't know to roll away the rock. They didn't, know what time, they didn't water at the right time of day. And he basically took over and Laban's like, wow, you do really good. How, can I, how much can I pay you to stay? And so he says, I haven't eaten of your rams. It was very common for celebrations for the shepherd who watched out for someone else's sheep to every now and then kill a ram to feed his family. He said, I didn't kill any of your, of your animals to eat them. He said, and what was torn by a wild beast, I did not bring to you. There were, in shepherding, there was an exception. Like, like the owner would come back and count sheep. And if he had 100 and he comes back, there's only 99. Hey, what happened here? You know, if the shepherd could produce the dead carcass, like, hey, look, a lion tore this one up. Okay, you're not responsible for that. He's like, you know what? Even when wild beasts killed the sheep, I didn't bring them to you. I replaced them with one of my own. I bore the loss myself. He said, my hand re- you required, and even if it was stolen by day or night, sometimes they would negotiate. Okay, if a sheep gets stolen at night, you're not responsible. If it gets st- stolen in broad daylight, you're, it's, you're on the hook for it. He's like, we had a deal where day or night doesn't matter. It's on me. And so Laban, again, negotiated pretty strongly against him. He said, and there I was. By day, the heat consumed me. I'm out there in the middle of the desert watching your animals, and I had a cold at night, and I didn't get much sleep. I mean, he's really complaining here. He said, these 20 years I've been in your house, I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. I walked to school in the snow, uphill, both ways. Okay, no, that's not really in the Bible. Sorry. Okay. But it's, do you see the, the way he's kind of whining and complaining here and he's going off? It's like, why, why was this conversation not had earlier? It's like all this pressure's been building up and building up and building up and all of a sudden, boom, when he just explodes on him. And it's like, couldn't we have let this out sooner? Couldn't you have been a big man and had these conversations? You know, we've all experienced, you've all been there. You've, you've probably maybe been the person who exploded and years of bitterness all pour out in one conversation. Or maybe you're the one who was on the receiving end of it. This is why we need to, the Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. You need to get that stuff on the table before you go to bed, maybe long before that, and, and talk to each other and get these things off your chest. And what's funny is a certain percentage, I don't want to say half, of the things that you may be really worked up about may not even be true. And you're like, oh, well, I thought you meant this. Oh, no, I didn't mean that at all. I meant this. Oh, okay. And all of a sudden, that pressure is relieved. But he's avoided com- confrontation for 20 years. Jacob is totally discounting his fault in all this. He's like, well, yeah, I did trick you, and I've tricked my dad, and I've tricked my brother. And, and so he's overlooking that he, what a deceiver he's been to those people. He's acting like he's totally innocent. He's fallen into a total victimhood ideology. He's just seen them. He's the victim in all this, doesn't admit fault in any of this. But not everyone can claim victimhood on everything, okay? Um, let me just back up here. Victimhood ideology is very popular today. Everybody's a victim. Now, let me balance what I'm going to say. There is oppression. There is racism. There is sexism. There is all kinds of problems in our country. It's not perfect. But we've taken the pendulum and taken a problem that's this big and make it this big to where everybody's a victim. Everybody in their group has a certain thing that they're oppressed or victimized about, and everybody will say, well, my dad didn't treat me right, and 
all my friends got a new Mustang when they were 16, and I didn't get a new Mustang, and everybody seems to be wanting to be a victim today, and, and not everyone can claim victimhood on everything. Um, there was a really interesting study done by Dartmouth University by Dr. Robert Kleck. He took 100 people and sent them into job interviews, and he told them, we're trying to see about uh, visual discrimination, when people are discriminated about how they appear. And he had makeup artists put scars on their face. And he sent half of them into the interview thinking they're going to go in with a scar on their face. He said, and what I want, want you to do is just watch and see if you think people discriminate against you because of your scar. And so we've got you in this interview because you're qualified, but let's see if they discriminate against you. And so there was 26 girls and 21 guys with scars on their faces. The other half had no scars. And so... Then they, and they, when they would send each one to the interview, and this took months and months and months, and they, when they bring them to the interview, they go, first of all, in, in the room where they did the makeup, they got to look in the mirror and see it. Then when they brought them in the hallway, it's okay, hey, let me just touch up that. And the makeup artist actually took the scar off, but they didn't let them see in the mirror. So they thought they were just touching up the scar. So they went into the interview thinking they got this big, horrific scar on their face. I don't know how horrific it was, but it was noticeable. And... Almost every single one of them said that the interviewer would discriminate against them and that they made negative comments and made them feel uncomfortable about the scar on their face that wasn't there. You see, if you have a victimhood mentality, you think people are saying things that aren't being said. I remember we had years and years ago, a long time ago, about seven years ago, we had a, a lady attend our church who had serious mental issues, okay? And one time she was working in the preschool. Remember the tiny town, the bounce town? She was working in there. And Sonia Hodgen, you all know who, it, Sonia could not speak bad or hurt anybody about anything. She's as sweet as could be. And she was talking to someone over there about something. This lady came to me and said, Sonia Hodgen called her the B word. Sonia would never, you guys know, Sonia would never say it about anybody. I'm like, well, did you hear it? No, I just know she was talking about me. I'm like, just the paranoia. If you're a victim, you think everybody is talking about you. Everything's negative, all that stuff. Just be really careful about a victimhood mentality. Again, not trying to undermine any reality of victimhood, but sometimes we see it where it's not, especially if we are not walking with the Lord in that situation. Verse 42 says, And if, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely you now know you would have sent me away empty-handed. So he said, you would have ripped me off again. So that's why I fled. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands, and he rebuked you last night. I think Laban's saying, oh man, I wish I hadn't told you about that dream. He said, that's why we're in this situation. So we saw the family meeting. We saw the wives responding unified. Then they planned the great escape. Laban's ticked off when he finds that they're gone. So Jacob now goes off on Laban. That brings us to the last point. Laban offers a ceasefire. He realizes he can't win in this situation. So he says, these daughters, they're my daughters. Really? <laughs> I think they're married. That makes them not yours anymore. And these children, they're my children. I mean, this, this guy, like Laban, are you serious here? And these flocks, they're all my flocks. Wait a minute, you didn't have an agreement that the specs, bottle, and the model were mine? You know, and all that you see, everything, all, this is all mine. And it, wow, man, Laban's on an ego trip here for sure. He says, and, but what can be done today? I mean, but what can I do? So he's like playing it up big and okay, but I'm going to let you off the hook. And he says, there's nothing I can really do about this today. So come now, let us make a covenant. Now, you remember what it involved, is involved in a covenant? You bring out several animals. You cut them in half. You lay a half on either side. You dig a little trench in between. The blood fills the trench. 
The two men walked together arm in arm through the blood, getting blood all over their sandals, all over the bottom of the robes. And the blood is saying that, hey, if you break this treaty, this is what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to cut you in half. And so that's the, that's the covenant there. He said, let's, let's make a covenant here. And to be a witness, and in fact, that's where we get the phrase today, cutting a deal, because you cut the animals in half to make a, a treaty or a deal. He said, and, and let this be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone. He sets it up basically as like an altar, like a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. Okay. And they took stones and they made a heap and they ate. What did they eat? The animals they just cut up. So they walked through it together. Then they have a big barbecue. We're fixing to cook some meat outside. Okay. So you can think of the blood covenant out for eating lunch today. Right. Okay. So they do all this. And Laban called it one name, Jagar Sahadathutha. And Jacob called it Galid or Gilead. They weren't calling it two different things. It was one was speaking Aramaic and one was speaking Hebrew. But they're basically saying the place of witness. This is the place where we witness that, hey, here's a line. You don't cross it. I don't cross it. This is our treaty. And it's a witness between you and me. And so, and in this place that God is going to watch out. So I can't always be here to see if you're stepping across the stones and trying to steal some of my property, and God can't see me. I mean, you can't see me, but God's going to be the one watching us. He said, if you oppress my daughters, watch this, this is really interesting. Or if you take wives besides my daughters, why would Laban be concerned about that? Right now, the covenant applies to who? All four wives. They were witnesses. But if he adds any more wives, guess what? They could stake a claim on Laban's territory or property. Say, hey, I've got this little God here. And he said, yeah, remember the covenant? I wasn't there. I wasn't even part of that covenant. I never agreed to that. I wasn't even married to Jacob yet. So he's protecting his own property here. And so he's looking out for himself again. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and this pillar, which I have set up between you? Wait a minute. Who put the pillar stone down? Jacob did. And what did Jacob do? Hey, guys, gather stones. And he told his kinsmen to gather stones. And Laban goes, you see all this stuff I built? Excuse me, you didn't build any of this. What, you're like on a total mental delusional trip here. I remember years ago when I was a youth pastor, I, had, we had a, I sponsored a basketball league at our church. And uh, anyway, my, my team that from my church played in the championship against a, a, a church down the road, and we beat them in the championship. And out on the parking lot, things got ugly. Our guys were walking out celebrating. Their guys came up with tire irons and started hitting some of our guys. I'm like, what kind of Baptist church is that? You know, that's crazy. They had just recruited anybody in the hood who could play. They didn't even go to church there. And they, these guys were ticked that they got beat in the championship. And so it was crazy. So our pa- my pastor, Dr. Lester Hudson, met with this other church from Memorial Drive Baptist Church and their youth pastor. And their youth pastor, Ray, and I were good, good friends. He was a great guy. But their pastor, he was a new pastor, and I have no idea how this church voted him in. He was the most egotistical man I've ever met in my life. I mean, period. You walked into his office, and it had pictures of himself all over the office of his days back when he played football for Oklahoma. And I'm like, this guy's tripping, and he thinks he's it. And he just had all his degrees and everything, and pictures of himself all over his office. And so Dr. Hudson, though, great godly man, was very humble and was talking to him. He said, you know, so, you know, uh, so we know that this shouldn't happen, and this, and this, this, and and they said some things, and he goes, so, so I'm glad that, that um, when I say this, that you agree with me that this is the, what we should do about it. And he goes, no, you agree with me. And I'm like, okay. And, all, and Ray looks at me and goes, <laughs> like, I'm sorry. I, I apologize for my pastor here. But it, crazy. This, this, is, um, this is really weird. There's, there's a word for people like Laban 
and it's growing today. It's called a narcissist. Narcissism is, is growing. It used to be a very rare if you met someone with this mental disorder, but it's not. It's, it's proving that it's not genetic because the numbers are flying through the roof. The National Library of Medicine 2018 published a report that said scores of self-reported grandiose, grandiose narcissism assessed by the narcissist personality inventory, it's a test you can take, reported a 30% increase in narcissism during this time period amongst college students. And this is years ago, it's getting worse today. Because social media, particularly Facebook and Instagram, focus on sharing, and this is another report from the Newport Institute, and sometimes oversharing one's own image and opinions, young adults who use these platforms frequently are prone to narcissism. It goes on to say research shows that higher amounts of social media use predicts the higher level of grandiose narcissism. This includes time spent on social media, frequency of posts or tweets, numbers of friends or followers, and how often participants post pictures of themselves on social media. We used to think that this was genetic, that people were born narcissists, but now we're seeing that it can be induced by social media. And we call these selfies for a reason. I, I remember one time I was on the way to Bouncetown, and I heard on the radio that they said the average female between eight, ages 18 and 26 takes 27 selfies a day. I'm like, no way. That's ridiculous. I, there's no way. That, that's someone just blowing some out of proportion. So I went there, opened, opened up Bouncetown. First customer comes in, and she's got a little toddler. And I kid you not, she went over on the couch. She started fixing her hair, fixing her makeup, and she went. And I'm like, 27? That's like 207. I, she was just going off with her phone. And I'm like, man, that's, that is true. They're called selfies for a reason. And, and the focus is on who? You. Let me, I did this once years ago, and I'm going to do it again. I want to challenge you this week, for just one week, no selfies. Not one. You can put someone else in the picture with you, you know, if, if you feel like you need to do that, you know, but none, none of you, no, no, no selfies at all. In fact, I guarantee you, some of you, because I've seen your Facebook page, you're going to have a hard time. You're going to be like, <laughs> self-control, yeah. Can you do it? One week. Because you know, you know what, uh, you know what I've seen about Facebook and Instagram and all those platforms? It's a subtle way to brag. Oh, I'm so proud of my son, blah, blah, here we are, blah, blah. And really, it's like you're in the picture and your son's back here, you know, somewhere like that. And it's just like we perfected the humble brag. We, we perfected the way of letting people know we're great without really coming out and saying how great we are. He says, I will not pass over this heap to you and you're not going to pass over to me to do any harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, God will be the judge between us. So Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country. He did a separate sacrifice and had all his people go up into the hill and they ate together and they spent the night. And early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and he blessed them and he departed home. And when it says he departed home, he never saw his daughters again. He never saw his grandchildren ever again. Jesus is the total opposite of Laban. He's the total anti-narcissist. The Bible tells us in, in Philippians, do, don't let each man think about his own things. Don't be obsessed with you, yourself. But let each man be obsessed and preoccupied with the things of who? Of others. It says, let, let this mind, change your mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, 
Jesus, it was in the form of God. He didn't think equality with God was something he had to steal. He was God. He didn't have to grasp it. He already was God. Look what he did. But he made himself of no reputation. And what are we obsessed with today? Our reputation. Jesus like, I don't care what you think of me. Pharisees are all like, man, you do this, you do this. You, 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 drink with, you drink wine with drunkards and you eat with gluttons. He's like, I, don't, I do not care what you Pharisees think. You're a bunch of vipers and just go away. I don't really care about you at all. He didn't care about what they thought. And being found in the fashion of man, he, he humbled himself. Humility is not something that you either have or you don't. You've got to choose it. You've got to choose to humble yourself and become obedient. You have an obedience problem, you probably have a humility, lack of humility problem. Jesus was obedient even to the point of death, even the death in the most humiliating way, death on a cross. Do you know this, Jesus? The Bible says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, and you will believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. You see, the nails in Jesus' hands should have been Gary's. The crown on his head should have been mine. The mockery, the spitting, the violence, all that directed towards him should have been directed towards me and to you, to everyone who has sinned, which is all of us. That's what we deserve, but Jesus took our punishment. Now, he offers that free gift to everyone, but because of pride and arrogance, most people are like, oh, I don't need that. I'm a good enough person. I don't need religion. I don't want Jesus to tell me what to do. But you can accept Jesus as Lord today. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for this really complicated story of family dysfunction. But Lord, you invite us into the family of God, which is perfect, where we're going to spend eternity with our heavenly father and our elder brother, Jesus Christ, in perfection for all eternity. Lord, forgive us for the small degrees and sometimes large degrees of narcissism we practice. We thank you for Jesus who didn't have one ounce of narcissism in him. He was totally humble. He loved us. He became obedient to the cross. And Father, I pray that if there's one here today who's never put their faith and trust in you as Savior, that they would do so today, right here, right now. We thank you for Christ. He is our everything. He is our glory. He is our eternity. And we praise him in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. If you want to know more about how to trust Christ as your Savior, there's my phone number. Please call me, text me. I'd love to take you out to lunch, answer whatever questions you have about God's word and about salvation. Uh, Amanda, would you come help me with um, question and answer time? We're going to do a question and answer right now. There's my phone number if you want to text in a question. There's a few already waiting. That's good. And if you don't want to text it, you can certainly raise your hand. All right. And uh, I think we're going to have to limit to these three because of the time. I did go a little long today. Sorry. Okay, that's not a question. Okay. That's, I was like, wait, what? Um, okay, what is the purpose of there being rewards in heaven? Wow, that's great. Um, Paul talks about that, that, you know, we, we all run the race and talks about receiving a prize. And it's interesting uh, that it's not for our glory because what does Revelation say that happens? It says the 24 elders cast down their crowns at Jesus' feet. So it's kind of like, when you give your kids money to go buy your birthday present, <laughs> you know? And, and so whatever rewards we do, and the Bible talks about there's two types of rewards. There's those who, with, when they're done with the right heart and the right motivation, are gold, silver, and precious stones. And then if you do the exact same things, but you do it for yourself, it's wood, hay, and stubble. 
and God's fire burns it up and tells you which ones were genuine. So when you do the right thing for the right reason, Jesus rewards you, but that's just so you can show up at his glory party and cast your crowns and all that at his feet. So I think that would be the best answer. I'm sure there's more to it than that that I don't know, but some questioners would wonder about believers' urgency that Jesus is returning soon, saying that Christians have been saying that since Jesus ascended. How do we respond to this challenge? That, that's a great question. And see, even Paul, if you read his writings in First Thessalonians, it sounded like he thought Jesus was coming any day. And so, um, and Jesus wanted that impression to be there so we'd live with urgency. But the more we know as time goes on, the more we understand prophecy being fulfilled, one of the biggest key instrumental prophecies being fulfilled was Jesus said that I will scatter Israel to the four corners of the earth, which he did. And then he said, before my return, I'm paraphrasing here, I will regather them and I'll put them back in the land. And in 1948, the miracle of history, the biggest miracle of all of history, is Jews from all over the world came back to Israel the United Nations gave them the land, and there they were, and Israel. And you know how Latin is a dead language? Nobody speaks Latin but lawyers and doctors. Hebrew was a dead language. But guess what the Jews started doing? They started speaking Hebrew again. So here they are speaking the language of the Bible in the land of the Bible. And Jesus said, this will happen before I come. And so that happened in 1948. And, so in, and then some, some people interpret, and I don't want to go here because I'm, I'm not convinced of it, that Jesus said, a generation will not pass till after this happens. Well, what's a lifespan? 72 years, do a little math right there. I think we're somewhat close. Um, anyway, so yes, people have been saying for a long time because people thought that. But I do think we're closer now than we've been before. And of course, there's a lot of, the, every religion of the world says, make the world a better place. And then Christianity says, no, the world will get worse and worse. And then in the last days, perilous times will come. The men will be lovers of their own selves. Children will be disobedient to parents. People will be unthankful, ungrateful, and violent. Do you see all those things happening? Like more than ever before? So I think that, yeah, just because Christians have been wrong before doesn't mean Jesus has been wrong before. So good question. Okay. okay. Jacob often tricked and sometimes manipulated situations. Later we see his son Joseph often did this in Egypt, sometimes using wisdom, but also manipulating for his own benefit. Is it safe to say he took after his father in this aspect? That's a great question. Joseph, the, the Bible doesn't clearly say he ever tricked or manipulated anybody, but it does look like at least the, one, the thing that he probably did, and I think this accounts for him just being young and stupid, is bragging about the coat of many colors. Other than that, I don't think I think there's some tests he says, I want to see if my brothers have really changed. I think there's a good tests. I don't think they're manipulation. But it at the very least, they could be. At the most, the Bible does not say, like clear cut, it clearly says Jacob tricked and deceived. It doesn't use those words about Joseph. Um, so anyway, that will have to be the last question. Did he say did he say like make sure you yeah, and that's a great request. If you're in jail when you for a crime you didn't commit, and you do somebody a favor and they get out and say, hey, when you get out there, can you remember me? I'm all for that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. Hey, let's stand, and uh, we're going to do a quick song on the way out. Please stay for lunch if you can. Uh, we'll be all out this direction. There'll be hot dogs and hamburgers and everything out here. All right, God bless you all.